This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us about anything we discuss on the podcast, or if you've got any ideas of things that we should cover, just email me, matt at times.radio. And if you want to come and see us recording something live, the famous end-of-year quiz, six years I've been doing it, at the end-of-year quiz, we are doing it for the first time in front of a live audience. It's open to Time subscribers. You have to be a Time subscriber. It's on Thursday, the 15th of December. It's called Politics Without the Boring Quiz. Two MPs, two Times journalists, two Times radio presenters. Politics Without the Boring Quiz. To enter the ballot to get tickets to come and see it live, go to mytimesplus.co.uk. Right, a bumper edition of the podcast uh, coming up today. Lorraine Kelly, actual Lorraine Kelly, queen of daytime TV, popped into the studio to tell me what she would do if she ruled the world. That's coming up in just a moment. Before that, Work and Pension Secretary Mel Stride, his Labour opponent John Ashworth, on this massive bomb, nine million people out of the workforce. What are they going to do to get them back in? We'll hear from them both. Before that, as everyone on Monday, it's time for this. The Colonists with Libby Rachie. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, and we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And joining me in the studio this week, Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning, Matt. Let's talk about Qatar. Uh, and there's been lots of talk this morning about the wearing of armbands, and now they're not going to wear the armband. England Wales not going to wear the armband. Rachel, I just don't understand why. Just all, they should just all wear the armband. FIFA aren't going to collapse the World Cup. There's more of them than there are... Of FIFA or something. Yeah, I know. I think it's so interesting that... Although somebody's pointed out, if they all wear the, the armband, there'd be 22 captains on the pitch. Which, which like wouldn't work. Point. I suppose they, they could single out the captains, couldn't yes, they? they but a different if every too. single yeah, yeah. captain got a yellow card, yeah. would it really be something that they... They'd sort of cancel each other out, you'd think. Yeah. Um, I think it's such an interesting thing that footballers have become, now taking these social issues yeah. so much more seriously. You compare... There is a generational thing. So all the kerfuffle about David Beckham being the kind of envoy for Qatar. It's a contrast between David Beckham and Marcus Rashford, for example, yeah, yeah. where he, you know, he launched that amazing campaign for free school meals, successfully changed government policy, um, forced Boris Johnson into multiple U-turns. Uh, and it's about football being more than a sport and more than money. They, they realise their role models and they take these things very seriously. I think that's a good thing. Um, but Libby, the flaw in that is you're then expected, if you can take a position on the provision of free school meals, you have to take a position on the human rights record of any country you play in. 
Yes, you want to read that wonderful column today in the Times about how all this social activism was very much a, a PR exercise, and now they're realizing that the PR exercise is going to fall through. Uh, I mean, FIFA has to be one of the worst organizations on the planet, doesn't it? It's up there with the <laughs> Taliban. Um, I mean, if they if they don't sort of defy it and take the knee and, and wear the armbands and so on, then it means absolutely nothing. All this sort of PR friendly stuff about how one, what wonderful social activists they are. I spit on it all. You, and, and so, what do you make then of uh, what do you make of Joe Lysett? Joe Lysett's committee. I declare an interest. I know him and I like him. Uh, but over the weekend, so he tried to call out David Beckham uh, for taking the reported ten million pounds to be an ambassador for Qatar, uh, and offered ten thousand pounds to LGBTQ charities if Beckham pulled out. And he didn't, so instead, he shredded the money. I mean, that's, that's literally the side of £10,000, we think. Is it real money, shredded. though, or is it Monopoly money, do you think? From what I know about Joe, my sense with Joe is it probably is real money. And okay. lots of people are saying, well, think of what that money could have done. However, if you think about the amount of money that political parties, campaigners, NGOs, charities spend, try to get a fraction of this publicity... It's probably money well spent, isn't it? Not really. I mean, if you think of the cost of living crisis, people really struggling to heat their homes, buy food, £10,000 for, you know, literally burnt, flushed down the toilet, shredded. It's just ridiculous. And you sort of let them eat cake, let them wear rainbow wristbands. I think it's going it just seems completely daft. But actually, the interesting thing, though, is you, the reason that Qatar did this whole World Cup thing was for publicity, effectively, to boost their reputation. Yeah internationally and the amount of money they've spent and the amount of terrible publicity that's come as a result of the spotlight going on them that i think is the worst kind of pr and actually that's interesting uh libby it was speaking to matt lawton uh sports correspondent of the times uh, last week and he was basically saying that that's why qatar and the and fifa have basically fallen out it was supposed they were expecting sports washing their reputation would be massively uh, improved by this and instead now everyone around the world knows how terrible qatar is yeah, but I mean, it's. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, own goal can't do that. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's uh, the, the whole. Like I, as I say, I mean, it is. There are pieces of news which it's quite nice just to turn away from. So, so really, don't come to me on that. You know what I think about FIFA. Fine, we will move on from FIFA. Let's talk about your column instead, then, uh, Libby. Um, <laughs> we need more men in the classroom. It's not often noticed the great shortage of male teachers now, even in secondary schools. In some areas, you know, a third of schools have no men on the staff at all. And so it's quite good that one MP has mentioned it, because it does matter in a time of separated families and single mothers, however good they are, that children should see men regularly who are reliable and decent and respectful of women, respectful of them who are grown-up men, because very often what boys see as they're growing up is a lot of women who are lovely and then superheroes and flaunting male celebrities and footballers and bigger boys in gangs behaving badly. And it's just not helpful to boys. They need they need role models. And girls also need to see just ordinary decent men because they're going to have to work, work alongside them. But actually, you can spend a lot of your childhood in Britain today surrounded entirely by women who are okay and images of men who are awful. And, and it's not fair on men. I, I was <laughs> so, really struck because I, I was aware of this because, I, you know, how little our daughters have had uh, male teachers in primary and in secondary school. But in one 
You said one in was it in the east of England? What which part of the country was it that has no male teachers at all? It's where this SMP Bradley comes from. Yeah. Um uh, that's one of the ones. A but in third fact of I looked schools, down yeah. I looked down it's in London you're much more likely to get male teachers, but even at nursery areas, though it's only some fifteen percent of nursery and nursery and primary schools have um, have male teachers. But it, it it really does matter. I mean, it might seem like a small thing, but it it does matter what we lay before children as they grow up. And because the public images of men are so often awful and unconstructive uh, for boys, you know, boys just need, they need blokes to, to look at, you know, they need, they need, um, they need examples like you. I mean, if you're, you're fine, you're a father at home. So they see you as a model of what manhood should be in every way. The very opposite Matt. of, uh, absolutely. Yes, exactly. Uh, Toxic masculinism. But, but you may be, so you're, <laughs> if, if you're the only man that your daughters are getting to sort of see a lot of regularly, then it, it's on you, Matt. You, you've got to be perfect. There's a lot of, uh, but it's an interesting point that Libby makes, isn't it? That the, the, particularly, I think it's secondary school, Rachel, where uh, you know boys start, you know, getting strong, literally physically stronger, going through puberty. And if it's all just a load of women, essentially, that's a very different experience, isn't it? So yeah. You're going to spend far more time actually at school than you do your waking hours at home. I think it's incredibly important the points that Libby made, and it's seventy-five percent of teachers overall are women, and actually also eighty-five percent are white. So there's also a kind of yeah. ethnic issue here. When you're thinking about role models, it's so important that people have positive role models that that they feel are like them and that they can imagine becoming. But the, where I disagree with Ben Bradley, the MP who raised this in the House of Commons last week, is he suggests that you might be able to pay men more to go and work in teaching. And actually, given the gender pay gap that exists already, I think that's not the right solution. But I do think there's something to be done about raising the prestige and profile of teaching. You know, we've, we've had too many ministers, you know, denouncing teachers as part of the blob, as some yeah. sort of liberal metropolitan elite um, namby-pamby nonsense, criticising sort of teaching methods. And then also teaching has become this kind of massively bureaucratic, box-ticking, un uncreative. If you kind of increase the status of teaching... Um, and maybe it's pay as well, but for everyone. For everyone, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, then, then more men will want to go into it and give them more freedom and more kind of um, creativity. There's also just a, it's a sort of self-perpetuating thing. The numbers of men have gone down. Boys growing up and thinking about what they want to do, being a teacher doesn't seem like a thing a man does yeah. because there aren't any men doing it. The other thing is you can't, for example, do an apprenticeship to be a teacher. Yeah. So you could have apprenticeships and that would then teach children both that you have, um, it's a sort of, you see apprentices yeah. around you, but also you might get a different kind of person, including perhaps more men going into that yeah, route. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. It's a fascinating um, uh, column from Libby. It was one of those things, like, an issue I hadn't really thought about. As soon as you pointed out, I think, yes, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a massive issue. Um, just, uh, I'll tell you what, in a minute, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to Alok Sharma getting very cross. And we'll also hear from Paul Johnson, who thinks uh, that high taxes are the new normal. Still got Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester uh, here. Let's turn our attention now to, um, everyone was talking about it two weeks ago. It finally finished COP27 yesterday. Without any great uh, breakthrough, it has to be said. And Alok Sharma, uh, the uh, British... Well he, well, he was cabinet minister. He was in charge of the um, COP26 talks. He, he held the chairmanship right up until uh, COP27 in Sharma Sheikh. He was really not happy yesterday. Emissions peaking before 2025, as the science tells us, is necessary. Not in this text. Clear follow-through on the phase-down of coal. Not in this text. 
a clear commitment to phase out all fossil fuels, not in this text, and the energy text weakened in the final minutes. Friends, I said in Glasgow that the pulse of 1.5 degrees was weak. Unfortunately, it remains on life support. How worried do you think we should be by all of this, uh, Rachel? Alex Sharma's clearly very passionate. You know, he's not, not Alok one of... Alok Unchained, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Alok Sharma getting overexcited yeah. is quite a thing. <laughs> uh, but yet another round of these talks passes without any real change or breakthrough. Well, last year, if you remember, he was in tears, wasn't yeah. he? This year, it was the sort of anger that you saw coming through from this normally very technocratic, rather managerial former cabinet minister. Um, but I think the problem with this is that it just highlights the danger that these summits can just be a talking shop. And in the end, governments have to make decisions that are going to be unpopular and, and, and make difficult decisions for all of us. Yeah. Uh, and we've got to all change things that we do. Um, and that's where the, the sort of... Um, you know, the f f out of the frying pan into the yeah. fire sort of idea that, that um, you, you've got to actually make decisions that are going to be hard for people um, and change lifestyles. But I suppose Libby, the whole point of these things is that the reason that everyone gets together is in theory, if everyone signs up to it, then you know you, you can go back home and say, look, it's part of an international agreement. You know, I don't want to do this, but you know, we need to do this. But they end up, instead, the opposite happens. They end up not agreeing anything. Yes, it's, it was. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very impressed by by Alok Sharma doing that. I, I'm, you can't leave it all to Greta Thunberg, you know. Yeah. I thought it was a very good voice. But yes, collaboration between so many nations is never going to be easy. Uh, you never will have a leader who will sort of lead and urge everybody on. So you've got to have voices within it who are as firm as that. So good on him. Yeah, good on him. It's just a shame, you know, Rishi Sunak's bumped him out of the cabinet. So he's not, you know, he's this passionate champion of it, but he's not going to be part of uh, part of the government. Uh, talking to Rishi Sunak, he's up in front of the CBI conference this morning. Uh, Paul Johnson, director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, has written in The Times today, so there's a new normal we've got to get used to. And unlike all the other new normals, uh, Paul, you think this one's going to stick? I'm afraid I do. Um, I, mean, I started off by saying it's rather dangerous to talk about new normals because <laughs> um, they don't tend to last forever. But uh, what I'm talking about rather sadly is the fact we're all paying more tax. So for, for a long, long time, the tax burden, the amount of tax that's taken as a fraction of national income, has hovered around just about the same number, somewhere between 32 and 34% of national income. Well, over the next few years, it's going to get up to 37% at least and possibly a bit higher. That was one of the many extraordinary statistics in the uh, stuff from the Office of Budget Responsibility last week. And my prediction is it won't get back down from there in my lifetime. And hopefully I'll live till the 2050s or thereabouts because um, we're spending so much more on the NHS, on debt interest, an ageing population, and there's nowhere left to cut other spending. I don't see how we get back to where we've been, actually, for the last 50 years in terms of the uh, tax burden. Oh, but Paul, 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 we're going to cut taxes ahead <laughs> of the next election. The Conservatives are committed to lower taxes. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some headline tax cut, but um, taxes have risen, or will have risen by the middle of this decade, by about £100 billion relative to where they were. That's the combined effect of these big increases in corporation tax, big increases in income tax and a lot of the other smaller increases that we've seen over recent years, alongside, I have to say, the fact the economy's not growing very fast at all. So uh, the tax burden is eating more and more into what's left. 
Uh, Rachel? I'm really interested, Paul. There's such a sort of clash between politics and economics at the moment. I remember Philip Hammond saying after Brexit the British people didn't vote to get poorer, but it turns out that they did. And all the um, projections on immigration as well show that, you know, high levels of immigration would be good for the economy. You talked about the own goals that the government had scored last week. Do you think that that balance between politics and economics will shift? And, and if so, how? Yeah, well, I'm afraid um, what you say is right. I and mean, we did vote to get poorer very clearly when uh, when we voted for Brexit. But the um, in a way, the economics and politics are playing out in different sorts of ways. I mean, last week, actually, Jeremy Hunt was um, he, he was pretty modest with his um, fiscal uh, tightening. He's, uh, he's he's played the politics quite well. He's found more money for health and schools over the next few years and has actually said, I'm not even going to bother to get try and get to current budget balance, which is what all of his predecessors, Barclays and Quarting, have tried to um, achieve. But but what, what really you know, still reverberates around my mind is what Rishi Sunak said when he was Chancellor back in March. He, he went through a whole budget raising taxes here, there and everywhere and then ended up saying, this is a tax-cutting budget. Well, that wasn't true. It was a tax-raising budget, and it's a sort of—it's—it's it's this difference between the rhetoric, where a tax-cutting party, and the inevitable forces which are pushing them to be a tax-increasing government. But I have to say, you know, I've got some sympathy because they clearly want to keep taxes down as far as they can, but they're still going to have to rise, raise them. Libby, the problem with this uh, this approach, though, is a bit like me saying I really would like to drink less and eat less cheese. But um, my ability to keep doing that, uh, you know, the evidence would suggest otherwise. Yes. Can I just toss into this that interesting figure the other day that for every pound spent on HS2, uh, we may get maybe 90 pence of benefit out of it. So there still are some quite big things that they could kick down the path. Well, you think, well, actually, what Esther McVeigh's argument was that we shouldn't be putting up taxes and then uh, proceeding with HS2. What's your... Well, your take on HS2, Paul, because part of the reason why it's cost so much money is because it's taken so blooming long, in part because of all the rows about whether or not it should be happening. Yeah, well, I mean, if I had the odd 100 billion to spare, I wouldn't be spending on HS2, I have to say. I mean, it's pretty clear that there are a whole lot of other infrastructure and transport projects which together would be much more valuable than this one great big HS2 project. I mean, doing something about uh, railways in the north of England more generally, clearly more valuable. And frankly, um, just sorting out some of our rather disastrous roads would help quite a lot. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's absolutely right. Yeah, if you live in certain parts of northern England, you'd be glad if a train turned up at all, never mind a high-speed one. Libby Perry and Rachel Sylvester and Paul Johnson. You can read them in The Times every week. You just need to get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Now, let's talk about the missing millions. What should we do about the disappearing workforce? Headline unemployment stats might be low, but other figures show a sharp rise in the number of people who've quit the economy, either because they've been struck down by ill health, including long covid while others have just retired early. So we're going to dig into the data and hear from the two politicians tasked with solving the problem. Cabinet Minister, Work and Pension Secretary Mel Stride and his Labour opposite number, John Ashworth, will tell us how they plan to tackle the problem. It's a big problem for the government, as highlighted last week during the autumn statement by the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. The Department for Work and Pensions has a critical role in supporting people into work, and I am proud to live in a country with one of the most comprehensive safety nets anywhere in the world. Yeah. 
But I am also concerned that we have seen a sharp increase in economically inactive working-age adults of around 630,000 people since the start of the pandemic. Employment levels have yet to return to pre-pandemic levels, which is bad for businesses who cannot fill vacancies and bad for people missing out on the opportunity to do well for themselves and their families. So the Prime Minister has asked the Work and Pensions Secretary to do a thorough review of issues holding back workforce participation to conclude early in the new year. That was Jeremy Hunt last week. Right, before we speak to the politicians, let's get our head around uh, the numbers. Uh, Venetia Mingus is a data journalist at the Times and is here. Venetia, one thing that le leaps out there is the, the, the definition Jeremy Hunt was using, economically inactive working age adults. Yeah, I thought I would start by explaining the vagaries <laughs> of how these measures are defined as it's really not that intuitive. So the workforce actually includes both the employed and the unemployed. And as Jeremy Hunt said, unemployment rates are at historically low levels, 3.6% of the workforce. But this doesn't mean everything is fine and dandy and everyone's enjoying that Monday feeling. <laughs> unemployment rates aren't really the best measure of the state of the workforce as it only includes people who are actively seeking work. So to answer you know, your question, those out of the workforce are those people who are not actively seeking work or what we call the economically inactive. And currently, there are just under 9 million people who are economically inactive, which is roughly a fifth of the working population. So, that's, so you basically take everyone of working age, yep. uh, but you then take out the big slice of people not looking for work for mm -hmm. various reasons, which we'll come on to. And it's what's left of that pie which gives you the percentage of uh, of unemployment, which is very low at the moment, so it's three point something percent. Yes. So the, of those nine million, why are they not working? Well, there's a few reasons people might not be looking for work. You could be studying, you might have retired, you might be looking after someone, or you might be long-term sick. And we define being long-term sick as being out of work due to sickness for more than four weeks. Of those 9 million economically inactive people, 2.5 million are not seeking work because they are long-term sick, which is quite a large number. And it's gone up a lot since the pandemic. It has. Um, it's gone up 1.4% since the pandemic. So in absolute numbers, that's an extra 630,000 people pushed into long-term sickness since the pandemic began. Uh, and so what, uh, what do we know about these people? Where are they? You know, is it more men than women? Do we get that sort of breakdown? Yeah, the bulk of those who are inactive are aged 50 to 64, uh, and this has been rising mainly due to people deciding to retire during the pandemic. And men do make up the bulk of those who are economically inactive. But in the past three months, there has been the rise has been driven by young people aged 16 to 24. And one might assume, given it's the start of you know the academic year, that that is because more people are now joining, you know, universities and studying. Lovely stuff. Thank you very much, uh, Venetia. There, Venetia Mingus, Times Data Journalist, talking us through the numbers. We've heard from so many of you, uh, Times Radio listeners, who've been in touch. Kath in Yorkshire says, "My husband and I are both lucky enough to have private pensions that allowed us to retire early. So we both retired about five years ago. For us, quality of life and being able to help our family was more important than earning more money." Uh, Jenny says, "I retired aged fifty-seven in August last year from my senior clinical role in the NHS." During the pandemic, the government removed the restrictions on how much we could earn without affecting our pensions. They've recently put it back, so now I'm very careful about how much work I do because it could easily be the case that I'm working for nothing. Uh, Mark says, I decided to retire early, age 57 last year. I spent time working from home during the pandemic. It made it an easy decision. I worked in the city for a private bank in IT. Unfortunately, I had enough cash to leave. After 40 years in the city, I realised there was 
Uh, more to be had. And so now I spend my time enjoying life in doing some voluntary work. So uh, the man who's now tasked with getting some of them back into work is Mel Stride, the new-ish working pension secretary, joins me now. Uh, morning, Mel. Good morning, Matt. So uh, you've got till January to try and get your, your head around uh, the scale of this problem. How big a problem is it having 9 million people who in theory could be working but aren't? Well, we know that of that 9 million, 1.7 million, in fact, are saying they definitely want to work. Uh, and as to what the level of the problem is, it's very significant because, of course, you've rightly been discussing earlier in the programme with Paul Johnson and others, uh, economic growth, which is absolutely fundamental, for example, in softening tax rates uh, in the future, in making sure that we can afford to pay for the public services that the public rightly uh, demands. And so if you've got a large number of people outside the workforce who could be brought back into it, then that is a real source of uh, economic strength for the country. Now, the challenge is, uh, what are the levers to do that? And that's why the Prime Minister has asked me to look very closely at this uh, and to uh, get together the various structures within government and external stakeholders and others to make sure that we come up with the right kind of solutions to deal with what are very different cohorts of people who are actually stepping out of the uh, workforce. So uh, as uh, was mentioned earlier, you've got those people with caring responsibilities who are clearly very different from students, who are different from the over 50s, some of whom may have retired early, and different again from the long those who are long-term sick. So there's a huge amount of work to be done, but we are doing it now at pace. Have you been surprised, as being new, new to the department, you're previously chairing the, the Treasury Select Committee, but mm. have you been surprised by the scale of the problem whether it's the total number or the particular numbers who are long-term sick, you know, lots of talk of long COVID. Are there any particular um, aspects of this that have surprised you? Well, if you look at where we are internationally, we're not actually doing badly by international measures. So there are other countries, uh, leading industrial countries, who uh, have more, actually, uh, economically inactive uh, people uh, than we do as a proportion of the uh, workforce. But what has certainly happened is that during the pandemic, that number has spiked up quite strongly, particularly when it comes to health conditions, the 630,000 that you referred to uh, earlier. But as I say, whether we're doing well internationally or otherwise, there is a huge prize, not just for the economy, but of course for those people concerned in many cases, if you have a health condition, if we can support you into work, we can improve your uh, the, the quality of your life, etc., and your earnings, and that's good for the economy and it's good for the uh, people involved too. There's a sort of difficult conversation you, you need to have here, though, isn't there? Because there are some people who, who can't work and there are some people who are choosing not to work, either because they've managed to build up their own money or in some cases it might be that they, they can live on, on the, the benefits that the state gives them. Benefits have just gone, going to go up in line with inflation, much higher than, than wages are rising. Is that a problem? Is there a problem with the welfare state incentivising people to, to not return to the workforce? Well, I think you have to see the recent rise, which, of course, won't actually kick in until April in the context of what happened last April, which was that the up rating was just 3.1% because that was the level of inflation in the preceding September. So I see it as an element of, of catch up as well as clearly protecting some of the most vulnerable uh, in our society from the cost of living pressures. So that's the pension triple lock being uh, uh, continued, uh, the uprating of benefits and pensions and all the cost of living measures that the Chancellor uh, went through uh, in the autumn statement. But as I say, what we've really got to do is identify across these different cohorts, what are the, the levers and the drivers 
that we need to be focusing on to bring people back into work. Now, if you take, for example, uh, those who have retired early, a lot of them will be reasonably comfortable. They may quite possibly not be interacting with the Department of Work and Pensions at all because they're not on any form of benefits. They're just comfortable enough in their own terms to retire. Now, the things there that might matter might be flexible work, so things that are don't require uh, the, the, these people to go back into work uh, full time. It might be that uh, providing information and assessment of uh, what retirement when they're older is likely to look like and have they put aside enough money may be uh, important. It may be that some of those people, because work has drifted now towards working from home and therefore the use of technology in particular, some of those people may feel slightly uncomfortable in that kind of environment. So there may be issues to address there. And of course, some may have some uh, health conditions. And that's where we need to work more closely uh, with the health uh, department in order to look at more we can do there, albeit that we're doing quite a lot at the moment. I don't mind me pointing this out, Mal, but you are 61. You're older than lots of these people who have left the, <laughs> yeah. the workforce. Are you, are you jealous of them being able to do that? Or do you think they, they have a sort of moral duty, a patriotic duty to get back to work to take some of the jobs? And then we wouldn't be having this argument about having more migrants coming in to do them. Well, look, I, I think if somebody's worked very hard uh, and they put something away and they're able to retire earlier, then I, it's not for me to criticise that. But I'd like to channel the kind of enthusiasm and interest that a lot of those people quite rightly have to get involved, for example, uh, with charities and good local works. I'd like that sort of sentiment perhaps to be translated over into the workforce because there is a real value uh, in people re-engaging uh, with the workforce. It helps business, it helps raise taxes, and that in turn helps uh, to fund the uh, vital local services that we all depend upon. So I, I would hope that some of that kind of shift could be part of perhaps what we come forward with uh, with our ideas in the new year. Uh, well, we'll look forward to that. We'll, Mel, we'll try and get you back on in the new year when you've uh, when you've come up with your ideas. I'd love to. Uh, Mel Stride there, Working Pension Secretary. Uh, thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio this morning. Uh, well, let's get uh, the uh, response from the opposition now. Uh, John Ashworth is the shadow Working Pension Secretary and has been, I think it's fair to say, John, been banging on about this for some time now uh, before the government have woken up to it. Yes, we have been talking about it. And actually, you know, there's a lot there from Mel Stride that I agreed with, in, in, in fairness. But I think I do slightly take issue with his point about this is an issue in other equivalent industrial nations. I think our employment rates are still lower than uh, pre-pandemic. And that is out of kilter with some of our uh, equivalent nations across, uh, across the Western industrial world. What we are seeing is huge numbers of people forced out of work or unable to work because of sickness. That's going to cost us £7.5 extra a year. Part of that is because, as you know, the NHS is in a desperate state, £7 million on the waiting list, 400,000 waiting beyond a year for treatment. That's Wembley Stadium four and a half times. Uh, and the average wait across the NHS, or the typical wait, has gone from seven weeks to 14 weeks. So there are people who can't get access to healthcare who are unable to work. It looks like a big group of that, a growing burden of that is mental health conditions as well. And my point would be to the government, look, you know, I'm glad you've woken up to this, but actually I strongly believe that our most precious resource, the talents, skills and abilities of the British people, we shouldn't be wasting that. We don't need a review. We could be getting on with it now. And we've got some proposals that I think the government could be introducing now to help more people back to work, which I'm happy to talk about. Go on then, let's, let's have, the, have Labour's Labour's plan well, ahead of uh, the government's plan of the new year. Well, for example, the first thing is 
They've underspent by around £2 billion on the employment schemes, the restart schemes and others that they set up, uh, or Rishi Sunak set up. That money could be reallocated now to helping this group of people. That would help a million extra, an extra, a million extra people. And then there's schemes like um, this mental health. We should be more integrating more employment support with mental health services. This does happen in pockets of the country. The NHS has got an aim to help 55,000 people get into work who they are dealing with through mental health services. We should be building on that scheme and expanding it. We should expand it to people who've got addiction problems. We should actually be putting employment support into primary care as well. So we need better joined up working between the job centres and local employment services and the NHS. And, you know, I did the NHS or Health for Labour for, well, for, forever, <laughs> I think it was. So, I mean, I'm, I'm bringing that sort of expertise that I've got in the health policy into this brief as, uh, as working pensions. Mel's also right. You know, people who have left work in their 50s, perhaps they should have access to retraining opportunities, a sort of reskill, reskilling audits. But also many of them will want flexible work options. So we could be moving further ahead with giving people the right to have flexible work if they need it for caring responsibilities. So there are different measures that could be introduced now. Another one is access to work. I should mention this. Access to work is a scheme that helps disabled people move into the workplace. They get help with equipment, sometimes helps with travel costs and things like that. There's a huge, huge waiting list for this access to work scheme. Why have we got a massive waiting list? Why aren't we fixing that now? So there's things that we could happen now before this January review. When you hear the CBI today saying we need, we need higher migration to plug these uh, gaps, is it actually on business to do more maybe to invest in training, uh, maybe, like you said, you know, spend a bit of money on making their uh, uh, vacancies more accessible to disabled people, rather than thinking that the solution to everything is, is more movement of people. Well, I mean, Jeremy Hunt and the government are expecting uh, migration to increase. That was in their announcement uh, last week. They've increased their uh, expectations on uh, migration to try and fill the million vacancies. Yeah. And by the way, it's a million vacancies now. By 2030, unless we do something, it will be two and a half million vacancies. They're the projections. But when you've got nine million people on or <laughs> yeah. out of the workforce, actually, you could easily fill that you know, million without you know, well, indeed. And forcing people into work. And there's huge talent, skills yeah. and abilities in those people who are out of work, which is why we should be helping them, supporting them. And moving into work now should be a much more dynamic process. It shouldn't be a sort of, you go to the job centre and there you go, you're off to work. You need ongoing support in work, particularly if you've got a mental health condition, particularly if you've got a disability. That's why things like access to work, that's why this better integration between job centres, employment services uh, and the NHS is, is, is so absolutely vital. But on the training point, I think you do probably need to also reform the way in which the apprenticeship levy works because the apprenticeship levy is an important innovation but for a lot of businesses it still doesn't suit their sort of the way in which they run their businesses so you could make that more flexible and reform it and then businesses could invest more in retraining as well and what do you say and ask Mel Strathcote what do you say to those people in their late 50s maybe early 60s who've you know are able to retire they've what they've stepped you know all the training and investment that's got into them with all the experience that they have and then, you know, they email into us and say, well, we're helping out in a charity shop or whatever. And yeah, they, yeah. they feel good about doing that. And Mel's saying, actually, they should take that for the good of the country attitude and go and get a job. Well, I mean, there's a big chunk of the over 50s. Some of them, because of the equity in their homes, because they're able to draw down a private pension, probably feel comfortably off. Question, though, 
is, it's not for me to lecture them, but have all of them done the calculations as to whether what they're drawing down now means they can suffer, because they could live for another 30, 40 years. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know? Yeah. So you do need help with making those very, sometimes very difficult calculations. But there's another big group of over 50s who are being forced out of the labour market. The evidence seems to suggest they tend to work in, they've worked in retail or transport, hard jobs, right, where they've been forced out because of sickness. And is there... Uh, support mechanisms is the help uh, more tailored help that the job centres and the NHS should be giving that cohort of people I suspect I think there, there is and that's what we need to be looking at last question um, should the, there's lots of carrot you're talking about to get people back in does there need to be more stick as well does there need to be the threat of withdrawing uh, benefits from from people in this group to try and get them back into work well <laughs> In fairness, all governments have tried that. I mean, the, the new Labour government tried it. This government um, really sort of went, put rocket boosters underneath it. And it, all this sort of sanctions, what, what can be quite humiliating sort of assessment tests, they haven't really worked at all in getting people back to work. Now, many of the people, when you go on sickness benefit, on the it's a bit complicated because now different types of benefits, yeah. but if you take the old version, ESA, all the people who went on that only 4% a year come off it to go back into work. But this, when, we, when you're talking about, you know, up to 3.5 million people claiming a, an equivalent benefit, that's a very small yeah. number of people. But all that kind of, you know, come and have a test and prove to me you can walk from here to here and all that kind of stuff, it, that, I think that just humiliates people and it hasn't worked. You know, you do have to have an assessment process, of course, before people can claim sickness benefits. But I think you just need to change the culture and you need to be giving people active support by better linking up with health services or better linking up with retraining and reskilling opportunities. And we will no doubt return to this issue of the missing millions in the future. Do get in touch with us. You can email me matt at times.radio. Up next on the podcast, Lorraine Kelly rules the world. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Yeah, here on Times Radio, we know that not it's not always the politicians have all the answers. Every Monday at this time, we ask someone who's not a politician what they would do if they ruled the world. She already rules the world, rules the world of daytime TV. The Queen 
of the TV sofa, Lorraine Kelly, is in the studio morning. No, afternoon. Afternoon. How are you? Just afternoon. I'm really good. Welcome to Times Radio. It's fabulous. I'm usually listening to you while I'm walking my dogs, so this is very oh, strange. Nice. I've crawled inside well, my radio. You, you get up, do the show, then that's you done. Well, sadly, no. I wish it was, <laughs> but no. But I do get to do lovely things, like yeah. I see films yeah. you know, before they come out, and I'm in a wee um, like screening area, and you don't get people talking or rattling sweeties <gasps> or eating. See, I would ban that if I was in charge. Well, here we go. This we are putting you in charge of the world. Yeah. Okay. What would be the first big change that you'd make? Well, obviously, we have to do things on climate change and poverty and all of that. Of course, we do. Yes, that's a given. Um, yes, of course it is. But people that litter, yeah, um, have to be re-educated. And if they weren't re-educated and they keep littering, I'd have to put them in the jail. Fine. I'd have to. Uh, the other thing I think I would do is I'd change education for kids because an awful lot of kids come out of school and they don't know how to cook. So, yeah. And you know how the way that home economics was always frowned upon at school yeah, and everybody yeah. everybody looked down on it. Actually, it's one of the most important things. You have to be able to feed yourself yeah. and cook and all of that. Um, also, how to deal with money. Kids should yeah, be taught yeah. how to do that. And, and finally, maybe most important of all, sex education. Yeah. How not to get pregnant, how to get pregnant, what you do, where it goes, all of these things. I think very, very important. So I would change the curriculum to emphasise things like to that. To pay for life more than just exactly. passing the next Exactly. As well, of course, as really important stuff like science and all of that, yeah. um, and literature and all, everything like that, and books and culture, that's really important. But give people life skills that yeah, they can yeah, walk yeah. out of school and they know how to cook mince and tatties, how to balance the books <laughs> and say, so how to have a nice sex life. What's your, your go-to cook? Uh, what's your go-to dish? Well... Matt, I don't cook. Don't I'm not you? allowed to cook. I'm so bad at cooking. <laughs> I'm the worst that you ever have. But luckily... What's my... the worst thing that's happened when you've been cooking? Oh, there's so many, so many. I mean, I, I even burn things that you're just supposed to slam in the oven. You know, like my husband will leave things for me and I, I put them in and, and somehow... And he told me to put it in for half an hour. I put it in for half an hour and it comes out either raw or overcooked. It's just I've got this sort of reverse Midas You have someone who comes in and shows you how to cook every, every week. I used to, we used to, but I was rubbish. No. Absolutely rubbish. Just really, really bad. But Steve's great and my daughter's great. They, oh, they both, are. I don't know where she got it from, but they both can cook they really well. Cooking. So I'm just I'm just banned. I'll clean up. Yeah. I'm oh, that's good. I actually really enjoy cleaning up. I find it actually very therapeutic. So I don't mind doing that. Yeah. But I just don't like the actual it's too much going on I do a running order like as if it's a show <laughs> because too many see making breakfast and too many things are happening at the one time no no no. and what would you do to people who rustle sweets in cinemas now that is my pet hate and why though Matt why 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 do they sell noisy food it's a good question. What is wrong? Uh, everything's with them? in a rustly packet. It's in a, and, and it's these people that take forever and a day to unwrap a yeah. sweetie. And I'm like, just eat it. I mean, it's just, you know, it just drives me crazy. And also, why do they sell stuff that's huge? I mean, you can't just go in and get a wee poke of sweeties. We see a poke, that's another yeah. one of your words. Yeah. A wee bag of sweeties. Um, it's giant. It's like a bucket of, of, you know, soda. It's like everything is huge. Why? Yeah. Why supersize everything? I don't understand. Because well, I, I forfeit every time. They're like, would you like to go large for an extra 10 p? like, wow, for another 10 p. And then you're right. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Just covered in popcorn. Absolutely. It's mad. It's got to stop. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
that, has to immediately. So that's what you would do if you were in charge. Yes. What sort of leader do you think you'd be? Are you a delegator? Are you hands-off, hands-on? Mm, I think I'd be a delegator. And I think yeah. what I'd do is I would surround myself with people that were better than me. I'd surround myself with experts. For example, I am a... There's I'm, no way that'll catch No, up. I'm a massive sci-fi fan. So I know that this can be people round about me that, that maybe aren't true, although I do believe Mr Spock is true. Yeah. So I love Star Trek. I would have Captain Kirk... As right. Prime Minister, yes. then is I mean you'd have to curb the the you know the, the womanising because in every single episode he had a different girl, right? <laughs> but it's never stopped anyone else, has it? No. Anyway, Captain Kirk as Prime Minister, Spock as Chancellor, and yeah. he can rein in Captain Kirk, you see, with his logic, and he yeah. would sort everything out, balance the books, make sure everything was okay, and then obviously Doctor McCoy as Health Secretary. Perfect, don't you think? Yeah, I think that would work very very well. Billy Connolly, Minister of Culture, and there we are. We're away. Perfect. You're We're away. You're away. We're away. We're fine. We're good. We're happy. So that's who you'd have in your team. <laughs> I like that. That's a good. You really well, thought you the thing. Yeah, you put it all together. I just think it would work really, really well. Yeah, and we already know that they can work well together. Well, so they do. They clashing. love each other. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there's a whole load of fan fiction on just how much they love each other. We don't need but to get into that. Maybe you don't way. want to get into that, <laughs> but they do actually. Have you work been writing very... some filth on the internet? <laughs> no, right, I Kelly? have not. I have not, and it's it's yes, it's um, very naughty. You've but... been reading it though. Well, I haven't pointed out to me. And for research purposes, I may or may not have read one paragraph. Of all the things I was expecting when you came in, Star Maybe that Trek wasn't it. Filth was not one of them. And what would be, well, apart from that, because all political careers ended failure, what would be your yeah. vice? I Why would you have to resign? My problem would be that I would probably not tolerate fools very well. Yeah. And sadly, at the moment, um, all across the political spectrum, <laughs> we seem to have a lot of clowns. There are, yeah. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. And that would be a problem. I think that's why I You'd would lose have your to rag. go. Do you I, shout, Lorraine? No, I don't. I don't because it doesn't get you anywhere. No. I think you get a lot more. My gran always said you get a lot more with sugar than vinegar. So you just love bomb people. And the more ghastly they are, the more you love bomb them. And then they come round to your point of view, usually. That explains so much about when you've been asked about various politicians and former colleagues in the past. <laughs> Indeed. Absolutely. Which well, we'll talk about some of that in just a minute. And you're going to do the quiz. Absolutely, yes. This is how much of a fan Lorraine is. She wants to come on and do the quiz. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Very good afternoon to you. Was that your phone or mine? To just pings then. Who pings then? I wasn't me pinging. Was I've got me? mine on silent. Somebody pings then. Who's I it? never pinged. Oh, anyway. <laughs> I'm not a submarine. Lorraine Kelly's here. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> uh, now, um, we just talked about what you do if you rule the world. Of course, yes. you, you've spoken to lots of people who've at least run the country, if not uh -huh. ruled the world. Yeah. Let's take a listen to some of these. I know, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. What's the point of you coming on and then not saying anything? I'm sorry? What is the point of you coming on the TV um, to clear the air and then you don't say anything? Well, I, I believe I said a few things. What What is it that well, you're looking for that I say? Well, you, I did, you didn't answer any, any of the questions that, the, that was, were put to you, and I just don't see the point of you coming on, to be honest. Rains Kelly's here. Do you remember Esther McVeigh a... from mm -hmm. her uh, GMTV days? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. So you got on with Esther then, uh, Lorraine? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember, love. I don't remember at all. I really don't. It was an awful long time ago. I know people make fun of me, and I'm the I'm the tractor porn man. Um, but you know, I I promise you that was the case. Um, but like I said, my mistake and why I went was because I went back on a second time. And, yeah, you went back to look yeah, at it again. Exactly. That, that was the thing. I've got neighbourhood crime down since I was elected Lorraine is waiting by thirty three percent. All the issues that you have brought up in this interview. Who's Thank Lorraine? you very much indeed. Who's Lorraine? <laughs> Lorraine's a legend. Very fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to Lorraine. Okay. Lorraine is a legend, and she's here. 
That was quite the trip down memory lane, wasn't it? <laughs> that was quite the trip down memory lane. When when I go, I do go, don't you I? Do. I right, do. Well, let's, let's sort of pick our way. Well, let's work backwards through that. Boris yeah. Johnson, do you think it was unconnected that barely two months after he, he asked who's Lorraine, he was out? <laughs> no, I don't think so. But it just shows you, I have met him a couple of times, awards things and stuff like that. And he is an odd one, isn't he? It's very strange, wee fella. Very odd. It's weird because there's this weird thing that people think it'd be great to go for a pint with. No, she's not. No, no, I don't think so. We want to go for a drink with him. He had quite a few minders round about him, and we did say hello. Clearly, I made a massive impression (laughs) on him. (laughs) Well, now I presume he's got a bit more time. Maybe you'll catch up with the show. Well, you never know. I mean, it was you know famously he did hide in a fridge rather than talk to. um, You sure that's not you pinging? I think it is you. You were broadcast. It was definitely a ping there, wasn't it? Was it? But I've got it on there. I don't even know why I've got it here. I'm just leaving it over there. Um, Yeah, so... (laughs) It was... Yeah, here's a strange one. Like, hiding in a fridge. Yeah. That's mad. Yeah. You, you should have not done that because that's going to haunt him forever. And it's those things, those like things that people remember forever. And of course, he was hiding in the fridge, not to not to come on ITV. Exactly, not to come and talk to Piers and Susanna. Yeah, that's the thing, and that was that was daft. And it's not so much not to talk to him actually, not to talk to them. It was that he wasn't talking to our viewers. Yeah, yeah. And that's really wrong because these people should be on there getting held to account and putting their side of the story. And that's really important. It's the viewers that are the most important. And, and the, the thing listeners. is, politicians think coming on the daytime TV sofa. <laughs> Is an easy, soft ride ah, with soft questions. Fluffy, fluffy, fluffy. fluffy. <laughs> no, and it isn't. And I think they underestimate all of us. You know, like, um, like my show and This Morning and Loose Women and, and GMB. They do. They do. Maybe not so much GMB, actually, but they, they do. And they kind of relax when they come in, which is great. Because then you can just go right in there with the question. And, of course, they're kind of a little bit disarmed and they're not quite prepared. But I, I think politicians are too prepared anyway. Matt, when I used to do this on TVAM 100 years ago, about 30 years ago, you would get the minister on and their shadow on yeah. to debate properly. Yeah. And then the viewers could make their mind up. And they don't do it now. But there's no way they would do that now. Yeah. They just don't. And that's not that's not good because it's all about the viewers and the listeners. What um when when you're thinking of politicians have been on and they've 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 completely misjudged it and they've thought they're gonna get an easy ride and they haven't, who who springs to mind from your show? Um probably David Cameron. Um, yeah. But he did he did all right actually because he is quite oily and he can get out of things. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, the most scary ever was when I was a kid and I was still a reporter and I had to interview Margaret Thatcher. It was wow. just in a it was in a sort of huddle, you know, it's in yeah. a sort of scrum kind of thing. And I was terrified. And I always remember that I, I asked her, I started to ask her a question and she went, would you let me finish? Like that. And I hadn't actually started. And I went, but I haven't even asked you anything yet. Yeah, <laughs> You're yeah, doing yeah. that. But that was her tactic, you know, and that was remarkable and very strange. But I've interviewed most of them, um, apart from Boris Johnson, who wouldn't come in, Liz Truss, who wasn't there long enough, um, and then maybe Rishi Sunni Rishi Sun- might, might He'll come on. He'll come Rishi on eventually. Sunak. He'll come yeah. on eventually. I hope so. And what do you think about this idea of, like, ministers not doing the rat you know you talked about them not yeah, you know yeah. but some you know that number 10 again saying they're going to cut right back and they're not going to be out there and doing it i don't think that's right because you've got to be accountable yeah. you, you you really do but what frustrates me is the way that they have been schooled and they've been they're like robots i mean it's, it's such a joy to meet a politician who's a person you know somebody like ed boggs i know he's not a, he's not in politics now yeah. and he's he's obviously presenting and doing other stuff and um, but his wife as well yvette you know she's like a real person nicola sturgeon no matter what you might think of her politics that's totally up to you but she's a brilliant communicator and yeah. a great politician and you feel as if she would know the price of milk and what do you think about because it's interesting about our attitude to politicians we, we like them when they're not politicians anymore 
you yeah, know, whether you're, it's Anne Whittaker right. or Ed Balls. Yes. What do you think of Matt Hancock in the jungle? Oh, I think it's terrible that he's there. I don't think he should be there. I think it's working for him. I think I really I do, know, which annoying, is which is which is toe curling. <laughs> but, but I do think it is working for him because you know he has been like a little puppy and so anxious to please. I still don't think we've seen the real person. I no. don't. I think he's putting on the act of, oh, I'm everybody's pal and I'm just a good old lad and yo, oh, you know, I'm I'm fine and there's a lot more to me. Um, yeah. Well, let's just see what happens when there's the you know the inquiry. They must have year. asked you to do it. Oh gosh, I would never in a million years. Could you imagine anything worse? <laughs> Honestly, and you said it would be the boredom that I yeah, couldn't yeah. stand because you, you know we see an hour, but you're sitting there you're on just, all the time. Oh, yeah, and yeah. also I wouldn't have anything to read or anything to. No, it would drive me mad. Apart from the you know noshing down on disgusting unmentionables. <laughs> no, thank you. What about Strictly, would you do Strictly? No. Nothing. No. Anton Debeck came on the show one time and during the ad break he said I said to him, Can you teach anyone to dance? And he sort of lifted me up and said, Yes, of course I can and put me in a hold and said, Oh no, don't ever do strictly. <laughs> he said it's like dancing with a wardrobe. <laughs> Wow. And he was right. I mean, I would be rubbish and I wouldn't be Ed Ball's ghastly Anne Widdicombe rubbish. Yeah. I would just be rubbish. And that that's not much fun for anyone. You have, like you said, you have lots of celebrities on your show as well. Yeah. Who are worse, politicians or big stars? The sort of prima donnas. Uh, well, big stars, not so much. It's the people round about them, Mark. Yeah, yeah. They're usually absolutely delightful. It's the 25 people round about them all justifying their existence, asking for water at a certain temperature and candles and whatnot. And we don't have anything like that. Um, they're, they're the nuisance. Yeah. They're the nuisance. And the more people they've got, the worse that it is. That is also true of politicians. But they have big entourages as well. They're quite annoying. You want somebody that... Billy Connolly turned up in a taxi on his own, sat in the green room, charmed the pants off everyone. It was just adorable. Oh, and that's legend. what you want. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Uh, talking of comedians, we should talk about uh, Joe Lyson. Yes, I'm so glad that the money wasn't real. I kind of thought it would be knowing him. Yeah. I thought there's no way that he would do that because it sends out all the wrong yeah, signals. Yeah. So, so actually, it was brilliant that he donated that money right away, you know, when he did this yeah, whole yeah, yeah. thing. And he has got us talking about the disgraceful um, fact that, that the, the World Cup is in Qatar. Do you know, I, I mean, I, I love football, but I just don't feel, I know Scotland isn't there, but I don't feel that this has got the atmosphere of a weird. World Cup. Yeah, it just feels really weird, you know, that like neither captains of England and Wales are wearing the, the armbands yeah. that we're going to wear. The whole thing. And you wonder about Qatar, what do they think they were going to get out of this? I know, spending the opposite all that sport money? washing, it hasn't helped their reputation it at, hasn't all. at all. Well, to be fair, an awful lot of people who didn't know what that regime exactly, was like, they who do didn't now. know, you know, about the migrant workers, which is a problem. You think how much money they've got. Yeah, yeah. They could have paid those those yeah. guys uh, and put them up in nice accommodation easily. Why would they do that? It makes no sense. And I, I just don't understand what they're getting out of it. And it, and it's it shouldn't be happening. And it's it's it is a disgrace. It's nuts. I suppose the big question is, who are you supporting? As Scotland aren't there, who are you supporting? Well, obviously England against yeah. Iran, of course. Yeah. Um, Wales, I am supporting Wales because um, we've got to be played in Wales. Dundee United's got to play in Wales. So I'll be supporting them. Poland, because I've got tons of Polish fans. Uh, fans, not fans. I've got tons of Pol Polish friends. I would love <laughs> to think I have Polish fans. It would be amazing. But I've got lots of pals from Poland. But yeah, definitely would like to see, um, you know, England and Wales and Poland doing, doing well. I really would. I really would think it. But then, do you want to win this World Cup? Do yeah. you, Matt? 
do you as an English do person? Do you want to? Do you I feel as can't. if? No, I'm not to? normally big into football. I, li- I like a tournament because I can commit well, to sure, it. Of course, I like to commit to it and yeah. then forget all about it. Okay, and I don't know if I can even be bothered committing to this. I, I mean, know this is the thing. I know it does start in five minutes, but you wouldn't you wouldn't know yeah. it, would you? No. There's not that sense of excitement no. and your your stomach's like a washing machine. And, I haven't got you my know, face painted. <laughs> You've got your face painted. Neither have I. And and it's you know it's, it's a shame. Yeah, it it's is. a real real shame, and it's um and it's shameful that it ever happened. Well, lots of people, I think, I'm sure, will agree with that. Right then, just as we have got five minutes left, let's right. do this. Let's play. Are we going to do the quiz? Can you get to number ten? Here we go. Okay, Start by no. hugely popular quiz. Can you get to number ten? <laughs> ten questions loosely connected. Ten cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better job you get. Take your place alongside a listeners and guests. If you make it all the way to number ten and get that right, you'll cross the threshold and become our show's prime minister. We probably don't have time to go through the cabinet. Oh no! Go on then. So let's just, should we just get on with it. Just get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> let's play. Kenny gets to number 10. Go on then. Lorraine Kelly, here we go. Yeah, Question okay. number one to become Minister Without Portfolio. Complete this well known phrase don't throw the baby out with the. Bathwater. Is the correct answer. Question number two for digital culture, media, and sport. Which country does Lionel Messi play for? Argentina. Is the correct answer. Question three for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. What number makes up a baker's dozen? 12. Quickly. I said really quickly. Yep, ding, 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 ding. Oh, I let you have that. <laughs> Question four for Transport Secretary. The slogan for which car brand is the best or nothing? Is it Mercedes Benz or Skoda? Skoda. No. Oh, no. That should have been out on the last one, to be yeah, fair. But we'll we'll let you. We'll that let was you. Very kind. So you can become environment secretary. Oh really? Okay. No, that's good. That's okay. To... Environment, food, and rural affairs. No, that's fine. I can stop people littering. Exactly. I can throw them in the jail. And ban noisy food in gym in uh, yeah. cinemas. That's what out. So out goes John, the accountant from Guernsey. In comes Lorraine Kelly. Yay! It was lovely to see you. It was great to see you. And obviously, you can see Lorraine every morning at nine o'clock. Nine o'clock. <laughs> Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.